Welcome to episode two of the Dancing at the Crossroads podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Ferguson, and this podcast brings you stories about Irish and Irish-American culture in America. We'll spread out around the country, but we'll often return to the Irish Catskills in upstate New York, where this podcast has its origins as an outgrowth of the PBS documentary of the same name. In this episode, we'll spend some time in Leeds and South Cairo, New York, which left an indelible mark on Irish music in this country. If you're unfamiliar with the area, we'll let Larry Kerwin, playwright, punker, and founding member of Black 47, tell you how he arrived there. So we were up in, <laughs> in Cape Cod, and we got fired from a gig at the beginning of the summer that we were supposed to have for the whole summer. And a guy called Mike O'Brien, who played in Trinity 2, we were kind of a big ballad group at the time. I called him in an emergency and said, you know, you gotta help us. And he said, well, just by chance, the band that's playing in Leeds with us just got fired. So come to Leeds, New York. I said, where's Leeds? And he said, it's in the Catskills near East Durham. And I said, where's East Durham? He said, well, you know, make a left at Albany and you'll find it. That was in 1974. What Kerwin also discovered was that Leeds had already been discovered by at least two generations of Irish musicians before him. This is a mine up here. It is a, this is a cultural mine, and it's, you don't have to dig that deep below the surface to find it. You don't need to dig deeply, but it does help to know where to dig. Luckily, we have some expert guides. Billy McComiskey, the renowned accordion player and National Heritage Fellow, legendary Cayley drummer Jimmy Kelly, and former pub owner Pat O'Brien. We'll also hear the voices of accordionist Joe Durain, who's also a National Heritage Fellow, Mike Gilfeather, whose father opened Gilfeather's Sligo Hotel in the late 1930s, and Mae McComiskey, Billy's mother. Unfortunately, Durain, Mae McComiskey, and Gilfeather all passed away in just the last few years. But while they're gone, their words aren't, and I found them ringing in my ears when I stepped into the Marble Rock House in Leeds just a few weeks ago. This place, known as Gilfeathers for 50 years, had been derelict for decades. Now it was roaring with a session led by McComiskey, Noel Higgins, and other living legends. I had only been inside twice in the past 40 years. The first was in 1978. I was 18 and came to fill up on a roast beef dinner and wrap my hands around my first legal beer. The second was eight years ago, when Pat O'Brien, who bought the place from the Gilfeathers, unlocked the front door so I could walk back in time with him. We were in the catering business, you know, down in Westchester, and I got Lyme disease. So the catering business is a very demanding business, so you have to be really on your toes. And so I wasn't able to keep up with the fast pace. So we decided to buy a place and thinking it might be easier. <laughs> it wasn't. <laughs> so. So we had a lot of bands here, you know. We had Dermot O'Brien for about six years, and we had several other ones besides, you know, in between here and there. And then, you know, later on, tourism started to go downhill. So 
They didn't have too many bands anymore, just had them for a short period of time and then they call it quits. The building had quite a run. First opened as the Catskill Woolen Company in the 1860s, it became the St. George Hotel during the First World War. Then, in the late 1930s, it became Gilfeather's Sligo Hotel. Here's Mike Gilfeather Jr. My father moved here from uh, Rockway. I believe he had, he had a bar in Rockway on 103rd Street. It was called the Sligo Hotel. So I guess it was natural when he moved up here in 39 or 40, I believe he bought it. He opened a place up here and he called it the Sligo Hotel. And I think that probably, given the fact that he was known in Rockaway, he started attracting people to Leeds. By the 1950s, business was booming. Gilfeathers, which had a lone piano player for years, hired a three-piece band so guests could dance their waltzes and quick steps. Oh, I, dancing was big. I mean, I, I'll be honest with you. I don't know how some of these people would start dancing at 9 o'clock, and other than the band taking the break, they danced for 3 o'clock in the morning, and then you'd have to dance them out the door because they did not want to leave even at 3 o'clock in the morning. Dance with me, hold me so tight as couples waltz round the room. I never fell love like I did on that night. Joe and Eleni playing our tune. Same story up the street at Duffy's Green Isle, Pat Murphy's, Owen Lamb's Emerald Isle, and Shea's Irish Center. The Irish Center remains open as the inn at Leeds, and Gilfeathers is now the Marble Rock, but the rest are long gone. Duffy's burned down, Murphy's later became a bait and tackle store, and Lamb's Emerald Isle was consumed first by flames and later by weeds. But start scratching below the surface and the Irish-American history is waiting to be discovered. Again, it's all about knowing where to look. Billy McComiskey and Jimmy Kelly knew exactly where to begin. After pulling our car to the side of Route 23B, a busy two-lane country road, they led me through a tangle of vines and weeds. After a short walk, we came upon the remains of Owen Lamb's Emerald Isle. Back in the late 1940s and 50s, this joint was jumping. Neighbors were afraid revelers would dance themselves right through the floorboards and tumble down into Catskill Creek 30 feet below. Now, only a gray shell of the building remains. And even that is completely overgrown with vegetation. I think I, I, I was telling you, it would have been in the castle or in the overlook back in those days. You can make out the sign dancing in the lights, and you can see over here the shamrocks. See the, the sign dance? Oh, wow. Look at that. So you can make it out and see the... Look at the yeah, yeah. And there's a shamrock. The shamrock, they had the shamrock here. And the emerald isle went right across. Right. Yeah, so look these, at trees, you can just make these it trees are all sent. Well, see, look at here. See, there's this bar. Bar and grill. See the hair? It has, right. See it? Look at it. Bar and grill. You ever see a picture? Of Denny and your father at the bar together. Oh yeah! What a great picture that 
Jesus. They were best of friends. Up yes, Did, Did up here. Biddy Leonard and Pat McConaughey. Oh, yeah. Very, 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 very fit men. With big muscles all over their arms from working and oh, flat. And there was a young fellow by the name of Noel Hill who had learned from the great Patty Murphy, who developed the fingering technique for the Anglo concertina back in the 1930s. And Noel Hill was uh, a protege of this Patty Murphy. And my uncle Matt actually met Noel at one of the flaws over in Ireland and got him a gig to play right here. To play right here. The Emerald Isle is special to Billy McComiskey. For it was here that Billy's parents, May Capeless and Pat McComiskey, came on their first date to hear a new sensation, an accordion player from Boston named Joe Durain. When he was at Mass one day, he met um, an, another fella who had just come out from Carlo. His name was Pat Thompson. And they became the two Pats, Pat McComiskey and Pat Thompson. And they were the two guys that hung out in Brooklyn together. And right down the street from them, there was a couple named the Harrys, Mr. and Mrs. Harry. And they wanted to go to the Catskills for a week or two to stay in a boarding house. They were going to stay at the Overlook in, the, in just outside the, the, little, the little tiny little town of Gayhead. And they asked my father whether he'd give them a run up there. So they hopped in the car, the two Pats and the Harrys, and they went up on nine, they went up 9W and they took all the back roads because it was before the Taconic. I think, and it was well before uh, the New York State Thruway, and they went up. And when they got to the, and they found, and when they found the Overlook House, there was a bunch of uh, girls out on the lawn playing badminton, and there was a man standing there. And they pulled up, and 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 he said, "Come on in and have a cup of tea, and have a, have a have a bit of fun after you drove them all up." And he says, "You might as well stay the night. There's a great accordion player playing just." a few minutes from here tonight. And he says, all those girls out in the lawn, you, you guys have the pick. You have the pick of the Catskills tonight. Pick whoever you want. And my father said, he says, I like the little one there. And that's, uh, that was my, that's my mother. And that was Matt Capeless that, that owned the Overlook. And if you played music, or if you loved the music, or if you could sing, if you had a little, if you could, um, if, if you were any bit of fun at all, really, and, and you had a bit of rhythm, and you could, and you could hum a bit of a tune, you were more than welcome to stay at his boarding house because he, he was a merchant marine. He didn't need the money, but he was stone mad for the music. He and, and his brother Andy, Matt and Andy were both uh, completely stone mad for Irish traditional music. Their father, Andy uh, Capeless Sr., was a fiddle player and a step dancer. He was from Tipperary. And Nora Sweeney, his uh, wife, was um, Andy's wife, was from uh, County Limerick. So uh, that's kind of how it got started. So they went in, so he asked May to go, even though Matt wasn't too crazy about it. Matt was, a, as I said, he was a merchant marine. He knew all too well, you know, what they, what they were all getting themselves into. And uh, off they went down to the town of Leeds, and they met up with Joe Durain, who was sitting in the pub playing with that, with that piano player. Now, I can't think of his name. Uh, no, it wasn't, no, it was Billy Rush. It was Billy Rush, who was from Boston. And uh, I talked to Joe. Joe is a, a, a recipient of the National Heritage Fellowship now. And I spoke to Joe about it. What was it like to be playing with Billy Rush? And he says, he says it was great, except that by the end of the week, we didn't have any money left because Billy drank it all.
but he was one of the, he was one of the first uh, great piano accompanists that uh, that I ever heard. He made a he made a record with uh, with the great Bobby Gardner, who, who came out um, a good few years after that. So that's kind of how that's kind that was kind of my start with the music. I, I told Joe uh, Durane that he was probably responsible for my very existence. So it's pretty awesome, you know, in that right there in the castle. Billy's mother May and Joe Durane himself back up the story. That was where I met my husband. I was out throwing horseshoes, having a good time. Think probably a Saturday morning, you know, or something like that. And he just came over to me and we started talking. And then in the evening, everyone was sitting outside on the lawn, just singing, and you know, it was musical, music and singing all the time. And he said to me, a lot of the fellows are going down to Lamb's Emerald Isle House in South Cairo. Would you like to come with me? So I said, sure. So I went with him and his friend and my girl. We all started in the Emerald Isle House. And then it grew to Jerry Shays and Leeds. That was, we'd go from one place to the other. Wherever the music was, we went. Billy McComiskey, the big box player and a good friend, uh, his mother and father, their first date in Catskills, that's where they met, from, from what I understand. And they came down to hear this young kid from Boston, supposed to be you know, pretty good accordion player. And that's how they met. And then, of course, one thing led to another. They ultimately got married. And, of course, then along came Billy. Uh, Billy told me the story. In fact, he told it from the stage one night, and I was in stitches. Uh, so Billy went so far to say if it wasn't for me, he might never have been born. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. That's, that's taken it a little bit far, I think. But In any case, it's no exaggeration to say that Irish music was reborn in those Catskill summers in Leeds in South Caro. Uh, the Catskills was a very exciting time for me, uh, I'm going to say 1949. I had just done my first, uh, possibly the second of the old 78s. from New York, from Jerry Shea, and he owned a uh, bar pub in uh, New York City, and he was going to have one up in the Catskills, and long and short of it is, uh, we agreed that I was going to drive up every Friday night, play Friday night, Saturday afternoon, Saturday night, and then Sunday afternoon, and then drive back home uh, on Sunday so I can go to work on Monday through Friday, and that went on for the summer. And uh, he also had in place the uh, legendary John McGrath, a wonderful civil player. Um, and Jerry said, look, if you want to bring an accompanist or something, you can. So I brought the guy who uh, played piano for me in all those old 78s, Johnny Connors. Johnny Connors stayed up there for the summer. I had to come back and forth. Uh, to hold you know, my day job, and uh, 
It was a fascinating thing. Uh, number one, playing with John McGrath was a real hoot. Uh, great, great fiddle player. And um, Johnny Connors was Johnny Connors. Uh, it, it was great. It, uh, I didn't know what to expect. Uh, it was the first night I was there. There weren't, there weren't too many people. And of course, I didn't get there the first night until about 11.30. Uh, but it didn't take long before the word started to spread, I guess. And then uh, in the ensuing weeks, uh, the crowd picked up and got better and better and better. And I was starting to enjoy it. He wasn't alone. The reputation of Leeds and South Carrow as a hotbed for traditional Irish music grew in the 1950s. Joe Cooley said as much on Irish television in 1973 when he talked about meeting tenor banjo great Mike Flanagan. We're going to play an old reel called uh, The Black Tartan. And the Black Tartan was made famous by the Flanagan brothers way back in the early yes. 40s. I think, I think, Joe, you know one of the Flanagan brothers. I did. I met him in the Caskin Mountains about 15 years or so, 20 years ago. By the early 1960s, the world's best trad players swarmed there. There was the great session at Pat Murphy's Bar in South Cairo. And uh, Pat Murphy was from Tulla, and he used to uh, take drive the, the Tulla Cayley band members around. He, and, and, again, and here you go, he was a man that understood the music full well, but he couldn't lilt a tune. He wasn't. He wasn't music musical, but he was. He had, and, and I wasn't aware that he wasn't musical until, until I was much older. He had a great understanding of how the music worked and how the players uh, conducted themselves, what the actual culture was. But he didn't play, and I, I noticed as as, the, as I got older that he wouldn't be quite. He'd be more engaged in the conversation at the corner of the bar, sort of thing. You know, but he loved that. He loved the crack that went with the whole thing. And my uncle Matt actually uh, talked him. He was my godfather. This man. Did I say that? Pat Murphy was my godfather. Um, he, uh, from Brooklyn. He lived down in Brooklyn. And my my uncle Matt um, convinced him that there was no place in the world like the Catskill Mountains, and he should buy a pub there because he was he was a cab driver when he first came out, and then he was a bar owner right there in Brooklyn. Um, if you got my mother talking about it, she was, uh, it depend on who you asked. Some people would say he was a great bartender, and some people said he might be a dangerous one. I saw my father a few times the next morning. But he, he, uh, he bought his pub, and my two uncles decided they were going to help him uh, get it off to a good start. And it had a great bar, and it had a great back room, and they passed the word. And of course, this was back. 1957, 1958, there about tops. 1960. I'm not. I, I'm not. I was too small to know. And they passed the word that there was going to be a great session, and and this is how mythological it, it become. I'm not sure. You'd have to ask somebody out. If you'd have to ask someone else, was it Labor Day or was it Fourth of July? Because I don't remember. But it was one of those two weekends, and I got to go out on the Saturday night, and the talk. 
Well, there was a, a dance hall in the back room of this establishment. It's still there. It's still right on the outskirts, just up past the bridge and uh, outside of South Cairo. And there was a back room and there was a stage and there were um, tables off to the side and there was a great um, wooden dance floor. And I can remember a good few of the musicians. Uh, Mike Flynn and his brother Patty, the two Sligo flute players. Andy McGann, who was um, the prom he was prominent in um, playing for the dances. Uh, and not the dancers, but the Kaleys. He was, uh, I'll, I'll, think the I'll think of the name of the organization. The, the Bronx Gaelic League, maybe? I, I think that sounds like it might be it. Uh, what I didn't know was uh, he, he was he was held in super 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 high regard. I was uh, I was pretty small, uh, maybe eight or nine, and um, we just kind of assumed that these guys were just there. But in retrospect, there was a, a flourishing, a very strong, a powerful. Um, Irish traditional music scene in and around the Bronx and even down into Brooklyn. My grandfather followed it a bit, uh, and my uncle Andy was kind of more into it. So there was there was great there was great music in around in around New York City back in those days, and it got even better than shortly after that. But for that one weekend, there was uh, McGann himself and uh, the the two Flynn brothers, the, the flute players, um, Joe Cooley. The legendary Joe Cooley from County Galway just showed up. He found his way to Leeds, and uh, if you're familiar with it, Leeds is a block long. Leeds is about as close as you're going to come to a little town in Ireland as you can possibly get. And, but instead of the little small storefronts, there were a couple of little bars. There was a Maxwell's bar down, down the road a little bit near the creek, Jerry Shays, and uh, the Gill Feathers. And, uh, that was called the Sligo House. Uh, uh, th there was the two brothers, Mike and Eddie Gilfeathers, uh, Gilfeather. They both loved the banjo, and it was because of uh, uh, Mike Leonard, who had learned from Mike Flanagan, who played just up the road in South Carroll. So there was, there was so it was a, a pr it was pretty interesting stuff. Uh, Mike Flanagan was actually playing in Duffy's Green Isle which was just down the road um, from, from Pat Murphy's the night, of that, uh, the night of that great session in the back room. And my father went down to Duffy's, and he got Mike to come up. And, and Pat Duffy, Pat Duffy and Mike Flanagan both came up to Pat Murphy's bar. Just, they just rode up. It might have been like maybe a half a mile tops more like a quarter of a mile up the road. And there's a great record, a tribute to Joe Cooley, that Tony McMahon made. And uh, they, asked, they asked Joe Cooley, did you meet any, any, did you meet any of the musician, did, what musicians, what great musicians did you meet in America? And he said, I met, I met Mike Flanagan. I met Mike Flanagan from the Flanagan Brothers. The Flanagan Brothers made uh, great classic rec records around the time that, um, let me think, around the time that the McNulty family were at it. But I was actually standing right there when uh, 
Joe Durain, when, when Joe Cooley and Mike Flanagan met. So, so it was a pretty, ama it was a pretty amazing uh, night. And later on in the evening, Bobby Gardner came in. He just showed up and he wanted to have a tune with Andy and Joe. And he just hopped up on the stage and he started playing at about three o'clock in the morning. And he started playing. And he, it was probably more like two, and he played till about three. And, they, and my godfather had to turn the lights off. And the floor was full. And they had to turn the lights off, trying to get the people out. But Bobby wouldn't stop. He kept playing. And after a while, my godfather got up and he says, this is a wonderful night, but you're going to have to going to have to give it a break, and, and uh, we'll see you back here tomorrow after Mass. And that's what we all did. We went, we went back to Murphy's the next morning, and uh, I'll, never, I'll never forget it. Uh, Johnny Cronin, the great Johnny Cronin from, uh, from the Bronx, from Kingsbridge Road, from the Bunratty, who was where I met him. He's actually from Guinea Guila. Um, he was standing in the phone booth and feeding the phone booth quarters, and he'd send a $20 bill over to the barman and get more quarters. And I found out years later, I started doing gigs. When I finally got older and I was doing gigs with Johnny in the Bronx, I asked him, what were you putting the, those quarters in that phone booth for? And he says, oh, he says, I was so my landlord could hear the music. His landlord lived down in the Bronx. And the, and the, the phone booth was right there in the, in the bar. So it was a, it was a spectacular night. just pay a band to do that. That's not, that's not some, that's not uh, Irish-American hy hybrid enter musical entertainment. That is, that is what Irish traditional music is. They, they were all there in the Catskills for that weekend. Everybody and his uncle was there that played because they absolutely loved the music and they had a spectacular time. And the afterglow from that kind of kept it kept me going for for years. I ended up uh, playing the accordion that Bobby Gardner played on that stage. I, I made my first solo record playing that accordion, and my son plays it now. My son Sean plays that very accordion now. So there's an awful lot of continuity to the whole thing. Just a few programming notes. The interviews in this episode were recorded by Michael Rossi, P.H. O'Brien, Doug Gordon, and Kevin Ferguson. 
We heard Joe Durain playing his original Waltzing with Anne, as well as Harvest Home, played by Durain and Johnny Connors. We heard a session recorded in 1964 or 1965 at Pat Murphy's in South Caro, featuring Joe Burke, Andy McGann, and others. And thanks to Joe Burke for supplying that audio. The session at the Marble Rock was recorded during Catskill Irish Arts Week in July 2019 by Marianne Mangan. The session was led by Billy McComiskey, Mary Bergen, Noel Higgins, Mike McHale, Benedict and Hilary Kohler, and Padraig McEnany. Catskill Moon was written by Jim Meehan and Celia Keenahan and performed by Jim Meehan, Amy O'Hara, and Waterboy Fiddler Steve Wickham. It was recorded in Drumcliff, County Sligo for Narrowback Films and Ben Burr Productions by Cahill Hegarty. And the interview and session featuring Joe Cooley was recorded by the RTE and is featured on the Galen collection of Joe Cooley recordings titled simply Cooley. My thanks to Brendan Dolan, whose research started me on my journey, and to Peter McKiernan, Mr. Catskills, for introducing me to Mike Gilfeather and Mae McComiskey. We'll hear more from Peter in upcoming episodes. Until next time, Slan Gafolf.